Is it a sin? Is it a crime? Loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty. Guilty of loving you. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Criminal Broads, a true crime and history podcast about wild women on the wrong side of the law. Um, Sister month is over. What are we doing with all our free time? Personally, I am gardening. I just put some basil and parsley on my fire escape along with some um, mint and a small oregano, a small suffering, struggling oregano. And I also have a hydroponic garden in my kitchen. So basically, I am Old McDonald 2021 millennial version. <laughs> and I have lots of butter lettuce to share. What are you guys up to? Let me know. Criminalbroads at gmail.com. All right. Today's story is a oh shocker one with lots of twists and turns. I mean, aren't they all? Um, this is one I was very surprised I'd never heard of before, but that at the same time, only one person has written about this woman in the past like almost 40 years. And really, there's only one big chunk of information available about this woman and its article in the New York Times. And I thought to myself, Tori, 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 you could sit here and talk about the article from the New York Times, or you could ask the author to come on the podcast. So we're going to hear from Michael Wilson, an amazing New York Times journalist who wrote about this woman. So today I'm going to introduce you to Blanche Wright, who was framed in the media one way, and the truth, as Michael Wilson reveals 40 years later, was quite different. So we're going to be traveling back to New York in the 80s, which was, as you know, if you've ever seen a single documentary about New York, a very violent time, a very different time. You know, chaos reigned in the streets, or so documentarians like to make you think. Um, and we are certainly going back to a violent subculture in New York. So travel with me there. And you'll hear from Michael Wilson soon. Let's get going. A couple of months ago, I was looking for stories. I was clicking around the online newspaper archives that I like to use and I was waiting for something to catch my eye. Suddenly I thought of Villanelle, the anti-heroine of Killing Eve, the TV show, and so I typed in female assassin, hoping to find a real-life version of her. Most of the articles that popped up were about movies, though. Movies about female assassins. Hmm. So I tried another phrase, female hitman, which brought me no luck. And then I tried hit woman which only turned up terrible sentences about hitting women. So then I tried the improbable and wordy phrase, female killer for hire. And there she was, the hit woman I'd been looking for. She'd been arrested in 1980 for a series of vicious murders. The articles I was reading described someone who was clearly a psychopath, a killer with ice in her veins, the articles were full of phrases like double killing and accused of murdering four men and a woman and cocaine dealer and 
luxury apartment and shootout. And even the sentence, her last contract killing for $10,000 was last Friday. I couldn't believe what I was reading. This was the villanelle I'd been looking for, right? A menacing, Hollywood-esque figure who killed with a silencer on her gun. But some of the articles ran next to a photo, and the photo told a very different story than the text did. The hit woman is sandwiched between two detectives in the photo. The detectives are looking very 80s. One has a fabulous mustache and a cigarette dangling from his lip and a plaid scarf over his jacket. It's a bold look for a man of the law. But anyway, between these two detectives, there she is, the vicious woman herself. Blanche Wright. Age, 21. She's a young black woman in an Adidas jacket. But she doesn't look vicious in the photo. She's sobbing. Michael Wilson of the New York Times knows all about that photo. He came across the name Blanche Wright when he was working on another story about women and crime. I was researching a different story involving women in the drug world in New York in the 1960s. And I came across this headline from the New York Times about a hitman, hit woman team. The hit woman is arrested and her hitman partner was killed in a shootout. And I said, wow, this bear is looking into. So I set it aside. And when I finished the original story, I looked her up as much as I could online. I found to my satisfaction, a woman by the same name and age living just outside New York City in an apartment. There was no kind of social media presence. There'd been nothing written about her at all in decades uh, after her arrest in 1980. And I realized the only way to move on would be to get up and go out and knock on her door. And I proceeded to not do that for like a year. <laughs> it seemed like I had too much else going on to give up a bit of a day. So I finally did. And I went to this apartment building and I rang a buzzer. She answered and I introduced myself and said I worked for the New York Times. And uh, if she had a minute, I'd just like to talk to her about a story idea that I have. And so she buzzed me in. I took the elevator up to her apartment. All I'd ever seen of her is a picture of her being arrested. And she's got her head down. She's sobbing in tears. She's a very young woman in a tracksuit. And these two big beefy cops on each side of her kind of almost parading her in front of the cameras as they did back then. This door opens to this apartment. And here is this 60-year-old version of that same young woman, really. I mean, she's changed remarkably little. And she smiled and she let me in and I sort of made my case. When Blanche Wright buzzed Michael up to her apartment, Michael wasn't sure what to expect. After all, the headlines about Blanche had depicted a stone-cold killer who got $10,000 for every body she created. Michael didn't know if he was going to be met with hostility or maybe outright denial. You know, I didn't do any of it, it's all lies. So he was surprised to find that Blanche was gentle, 
kind. He told her that he was interested in writing about her, and she said she'd think about it. He left her with her thoughts. A week later, he called her. And she said, I've thought about it, and I've talked to my friends, and they think it might help other women if I talk to you. So for that reason, I will, I'll agree to talk to you. So I returned after she agreed to see me. We set up a time, and it was a, a Monday morning. And I got to her apartment. She sat down on a couch, and I sat down across from her in a chair. And I'm just going to open up a, a notebook. I asked a couple of basic questions, but really, she just started at the beginning. When Blanche started talking about her childhood, she painted a portrait of abuse and pain that went from bad to worse. She was born in 1959 in New York City to a 16-year-old mother who suffered from schizophrenia. Her father was nowhere to be found. Her mom couldn't take care of her. Instead, she'd lock little Blanche in a bedroom and leave to drift around the neighborhood, lost in her own world. And so Blanche was raised by a grandmother and a gaggle of uncles who beat her. If they didn't want her to leave the house, they'd tie her to the radiator, like a dog. It wasn't long before she ended up in foster care. Now, her foster father was in his 60s, and she was eight when he started coming into her bedroom at night to abuse her. He told her he was teaching her what not to do with boys— this went on for years. Blanche would wrap herself in her bedsheet, hoping that he'd leave her alone. Before long, she was completely disconnecting from the situation as a way to survive. She described herself as a radio that had been turned off. Nothing to see here, nothing on the sound waves. This isn't happening. It got worse. After years of this, one night he's attacking her and he collapses of an apparent heart attack and his wife rushes him to the hospital and he died. And the wife came home and blamed Blanche for this and threw her out. Convinced that she'd killed her foster father, Blanche stopped talking. The state sent her into a group home. It was full of older girls who harassed her, but there was one very special woman there, Miss Richardson, the woman who ran the home. Slowly, Miss Richardson brought Blanche out of her shell and helped her to talk again. She helped her to feel like she wasn't dirty and worthless and guilty, but that she had worth, that she had potential. But then it got worse, again. At age 16, Blanche did what so many other 16-year-olds love to do. She went to a party. It was a birthday party for her friend, and her friend's brother was there. Blanche had known him for ages. But there, at the party, her friend's brother raped her. And that was that. She felt herself giving up on the sense of safety and potential that Miss Richardson had given her. She began dating her rapist. After all, as some of the other women in her life told her, men raped women because they just loved them too much. Before long... Blanche was pregnant. She tried to make this relationship work for the sake of her baby boy, but this man, her friend's brother, was a heroin addict, an abuser. At one point, he fought with one of Blanche's uncles, violent man against violent man, and he was thrown into jail. 
Blanche used that narrow window of time to escape, leaving their apartment with just their baby and the clothes that she was wearing. Before he was locked up, he had beaten her with an ironing board. She had no idea what he'd do when he came back. So while Blanche is telling me this, it's like she's telling me in this painstaking detail, and I'm just kind of overwhelmed by it. A lot of people would skip over the parts of their life that are really the hardest to talk about. But she leaned into them, and it caused her great pain across the room from me to the point where I'd ask her to stop. Let's take a break. Should we stop? She said, well, can I get you a coffee? And, you know, we'd have like a cookie together and then we'd kind of resume. And it's like she needed the whole story to be told. And the pain it was causing her was not very important to her is the best way I can explain it. So I returned Tuesday for another full day of this and Wednesday and Thursday. It was back to back to back to back. By the end of it, she was wrung out and I was too. I had this giant filled notebook and I had this incredible story. I went back to write it. My only fear was like screwing it up. It was this kind of beauty to it amid all the darkness and grim details in my notebook that I wanted to make sure expressed itself. Up until that point, Blanche had only known men to be violent. Every man in her life had abused her or abandoned her. So when she met the next man in her life, she was stunned by how different he seemed from all the men before him. And now let's take a quick break to hear from this episode's sponsor, Nutrafol. The changes in your body postpartum can take a toll on your hair. More than 50% of women experience excessive shedding naturally within three to four months of giving birth. Nutrafol's goal is to empower women to embrace the beauty of their hair growth recovery with Nutrafol Postpartum by targeting the root causes of postpartum thinning hair, like the physical stress of childbirth and emotional stress of parenting, as well as nutrient depletion. Nutrafol Postpartum is breastfeeding friendly and OBGYN developed using clinically tested 100% drug-free and natural ingredients that help support whole body recovery, hashtag better you, and fill nutrition gaps to manage shedding and grow stronger, thicker hair. Healthier hair growth takes time, so you got to take it for three to six months, guys. Consistency is key. But when you subscribe, you'll receive automatic monthly deliveries so you never miss a dose. You can grow stronger, healthier hair and support this show by going to Nutrafol.com and using the promo code BROADS to save $15 off your first month's subscription. This is their best offer anywhere and it's only available to U.S. customers for a limited time. Plus, free shipping on every order. Get $15 off at Nutrafol.com, spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code BROADS. Blanche turned 20 in 1979. 
It had been an unhappy year for her. One night, she went to visit her aunt, who was sick, or so she thought. It turned out to be a trick. Her aunt had thrown her a surprise birthday party. And there was a man there. Here's Michael reading the opening section of his New York Times profile of Blanche. Even on a night of surprises for Blanche Wright, the man in the suit stood out. She had headed across the Bronx to visit her sick aunt, but when she entered the apartment, she found a room full of people waiting for her. Happy birthday! Then she was introduced to a friend of her aunt's, an impeccably dressed lawyer from Philadelphia. He seemed sophisticated with a three-piece suit and a briefcase. His name was Willie Sanchez, and he wasn't like any other men she knew. They talked and talked, and before he left, he told her aunt, I'd like to talk to her more. She turned 20 years old that day in 1979, with little to celebrate. She was struggling to stay afloat with a toddler son in her own apartment nearby, hiding from the boy's father, a heroin addict and a thief who would be out of jail soon and looking for her. But Willie Sanchez promised a new future. Blanche found herself pampered for the first time in her life, fitted for new clothes in nice stores, sampling expensive perfumes in beauty salons. She was swept up by it all. This captivation would lead, as the months passed, to literal captivity, ending in a 71-day blur of cocaine, guns, terror, and finally, an ambush assassination that put one of them in prison and the other in the ground. The police called them Bonnie and Clyde, a lazy tag that was easier than the truth. Blanche Wright went to prison, a broken human, so traumatized that she did not talk for months. She had heard of Bonnie and Clyde, but she didn't feel like Bonnie. It seemed to her that Bonnie had been luckier. Bonnie died. Willie Sanchez began to court Blanche with an oily skill that disguised his ulterior motives. He seemed gentle and kind, and at first there wasn't even anything sexual about their relationship. He just seemed to want to take care of her. He paid her electrical bill when her apartment went dark. He stocked her kitchen with groceries. He treated her to a fancy meal at a Japanese steakhouse for their first date. And under the guise of taking care of her, he was slowly, subtly, manipulating her look. He bought her clothes. He bought her nice perfume. He took her to a beauty parlor, and he told the hairstylist exactly how to do her hair. This was all grooming, but at the time, it just felt like the good kind of attention, like the glimmerings of love. Now, Blanche could tell that Willie Sanchez knew some sketchy people. She saw them. They'd be out at a restaurant, and some shady-looking man would come up to them, and he and Willie would walk away and talk in hushed tones. The same thing happened in parking lots sometimes. Whispered conversations, a sense of transactions taking place. But hey, lawyers had sketchy clients, right? Blanche figured this was all just part of his job. She was right. It was all part of Willie Sanchez's job. But he wasn't a lawyer. Not at all. He was a hitman.
Willie Sanchez was also known as Robert Young. In his line of work, you couldn't have too many aliases. He was the hitman for The Council, which was an organized crime collective run out of Harlem. The Council was run by Nicky Barnes, a kingpin who cut deals with the mafia, invested in automated car washes and travel agencies, was responsible for getting hundreds of thousands of black people hooked on heroin, and quoted King Lear and Moby Dick. Nicky might be most famous for having the nerve to pose smugly on the cover of the New York Times magazine in 1977, two years before Blanche met Willie. That cover infuriated the president, Jimmy Carter, so much that he went to the feds and told them to prosecute Nicky Barnes to the fullest extent of the law. Later that year, Nicky got life without parole. Anyway, Willie worked for Nicky, and while Nicky got rich and famous and eventually thrown in prison, Willie flew under the radar like any good contract killer. It's unclear when exactly he started working for the council, but he had plenty of run-ins with the law of his own accord. Two years before he walked into Blanche's life, he was sawing through bars at the Matawan State Hospital for the criminally insane. He was locked up there for a brutal murder where he climbed through a young woman's window, shot her when she tried to resist him, and then violated her dead body. Authorities thought he was crazy, crazy and dangerous. And they were right. In 1977, he and nine other inmates at Matawan sliced through the bars of a window in their ward, then crept through the exercise yard, then sawed through another window that led them into the cellar, then tiptoed across the cellar, cut through a third set of bars, climbed a 20-foot fence with barbed wire at the top, and ran into the night. The escape from Matawan wasn't even Willie's greatest escape, if you can believe it. He was rearrested the next year, and he was kept in jail as he waited for trial. On the day he was taken to the courthouse, he hid his jail bedsheets under his clothing. And then, at the courthouse, when no guards were watching him, he tied the sheets into a rope and lowered himself out of the fourth-floor window. He climbed into an open third-floor window, which happened to be the empty office of the prosecutor— and he just strolled through it like he owned the place. Then he asked a secretary for the best way to get out and just left. It's hard not to compare this to Ted Bundy's infamous escape from the courthouse in Aspen, Colorado, just a year earlier. Bundy jumped from a second-story window and sprinted towards the mountains. He gets a lot of credit for the perceived gutsiness of that escape— but if we're comparing psychopathic maniacs who jump out of courthouse windows, I think the award for gutsiness goes to Willie Sanchez. So he sauntered out of that courthouse, crazy and dangerous as ever, and he walked into Blanche Wright's life. It took a gun to make Blanche realize that Willie was a killer, not a lawyer. She didn't hear the gun. Willie used a silencer. No sound of a gunshot, just a whoosh of air. And then the thud of a body. 
She and Willie were driving around in circles in the Bronx. Willie told her that he was looking for a friend. After a while, he said, Hey, see that man there? Could you go up to him and ask him for the time? So she did. She walked up to the man, and as she asked him for the time, she heard that sound, the whoosh. The man fell. Willie Sanchez is standing there holding a pistol with a silencer on it. That's why it made that sound. And he grabs her and yanks her back to the car, and they speed off. And she's terrified. She said he looked like a whole different human. And she said, who are you? And he said, I'm the man who's been taking care of you. He was never the nice Willie Sanchez anymore. Now that Blanche knew what Willie really did for a living, Willie wouldn't let her out of his sight. He forced her to move in with two of his friends, Gene and Rosie, and if he left her alone, he'd lock her in the bedroom. It was a sick echo of her childhood when her schizophrenic mother would lock tiny Blanche in her bedroom in order to wander the city. Rosie, her new roommate, seemed to have a little sympathy for Blanche because she offered Blanche a bit of self-care in the only way she knew how, cocaine. It helps me cope, said Rosie. Blanche tried it. It made her feel better. It helped her cope, too. In the meantime, Willie wanted to make sure that Blanche wouldn't talk, and so he devised a test. One day, he takes her to a Holiday Inn and checks into a room and takes her into the bathroom and handcuffs her to a pipe and says, don't make a sound. He leaves, shuts the door behind him, and the hotel room is empty. And then she hears the hotel room door open and two women walk in. And she hears them talking to each other. She doesn't make a sound. And eventually, the women leave. She hears the door open again. Footsteps approach the bathroom door, and it opens, and it's Willie Sanchez. And he says, you didn't say a word. I can trust you. And she realized that this whole thing about a test, that he must have sent the women in to see if she'd call out to them. And apparently, she passed this test. There was one point when Blanche tried to get help. Remember Miss Richardson, the woman who ran the group home where Blanche used to live? She was one of Blanche's only allies, one of the only people who'd ever been truly kind to her. And Blanche thought that maybe if she could visit Miss Richardson and tell her what was going on, Miss Richardson could help her escape. The only problem was that Willie insisted on coming with Blanche to the group home. As they talked to Miss Richardson, Blanche waited for a quiet minute, even a few seconds, where she could whisper, I need help. But Willie wouldn't leave. He looked around the room as though he was concerned about something. I don't see any security, he said. Anybody could come in here and kill all 12 of these girls, and you two. Blanche knew exactly what he was telling her. He was threatening her saying that if she said a word to Miss Richardson, he'd kill them all. Later in the car, he told her, You know I'm God, right? I decide who lives and who dies. Blanche thought to herself, I'm going to die with this guy. And so, instead of escaping, she went along with him. She had no other choice. 
On January 21st, 1980, she found herself in the apartment of a Colombian cocaine trafficker, holding a pistol as the dealer writhed in terror on the floor. Willie was in the bedroom with the dealer's woman. Blanche heard the whoosh of his pistol. He came out and screamed at her for letting the dealer move. She didn't know what to do. He put his hand around hers and forced her to pull the trigger. When another man knocked at the door of the apartment to see what was going on, Willie wrenched open the door and shot him, too. The dealer himself ended up surviving, but the whole thing had been a bloodbath, and Blanche was traumatized by it and feeling desperately guilty. Two weeks later, Blanche and Willie waited in a car outside an apartment building north of the Bronx. Willie handed her a gun. They were going to need to kill two men, he said. He'd kill one and she would kill the other. She said, no, no, she wouldn't do it. They fought all night in the car as Willie watched the apartment building. And then at 10 a.m. the next morning, the two men finally came outside. What happened next happened in a blur. Blanche and Willie got out of the car and Blanche walked toward the men as Willie hung slightly back. Suddenly, one of the men reached out and pushed Blanche to the ground. He might have been trying to protect her. The men had recognized Willie and knew he was sent to kill them. Everyone started firing at once. As the guns roared, Blanche spotted a nearby maintenance closet and crawled into it. Then she poked her gun out of the door and fired once. She had no idea if she'd hit anyone or anything. She stayed there until everything fell silent. When Blanche finally left the closet, there were two bodies on the floor. One of them was one of the targets. His name was Marshall Howell. He was a drug dealer, and apparently he'd wronged the council in some way. In his apartment, he had a stash of guns and over $200,000 in cash. The other target had been his assistant, Norman Bannister, but Norman had escaped. The second man, bleeding out on the floor, was Willie Sanchez, Blanche's lover, her abuser, the fake lawyer, the contract killer. Willie was still alive, but not for long. He told Blanche to hide the guns in the car. She obeyed. As she left the scene, police cars came squealing up, but they didn't notice her. Four days later, the police knew who Blanche was. They'd found out her identity when one of Willie's relatives had tried to track down Willie's body and had apparently talked about Blanche. The police showed up at her apartment and brought her in. They questioned her all night, and she signed a confession on Valentine's Day, 1980. When the police arrested Blanche and they referred to them together as Bonnie and Clyde, They treated her like some master criminal that they had gotten off the streets to keep the world safer. That's exactly how she was portrayed. There were police captains telling reporters, like, she's the first female hit woman I'm aware of, and treating her like, honestly, like some kind of lifelong menace to society. 
Her story made the papers, of course. She was an unlikely anti-heroine. Hit man, now hit person, one headline read. But New York was so violent back then that her story didn't stay in the papers long. The media definitely ran with the Bonnie and Clyde portrayal. It didn't seem to dig too deeply to debunk that nickname. I can't blame them. I mean, you're working on deadline. You've got these police officers that you've known for years telling you that they've uncovered this male-female hit team. It's a great story, and it seems to line up with the facts. So no one looked too hard. Certainly no one went scratching around trying to find out who Blanche Wright was with any sort of gusto. It's crazy. The way the press worked in 1980, and that's no one's fault per se. It's just a different world. It's a very different city. The crime rate was so high, and so many people were murdered in New York City compared to now. Nowadays, this story would have been huge. Like We would have put a team of reporters on it for a week to write what happened, who are these people, what's going on. And instead, it's like, oh, you know, this happened. And then the next day, it's like, so she was arraigned in court. And then nothing. But if New York media moved on quickly from Blanche's story, Blanche herself was stuck in it. Willie was gone, but Blanche discovered something shocking. She was pregnant. And so, pregnant and traumatized, Blanche pled guilty to second-degree murder. She actually had a great lawyer. She had a mysteriously great lawyer who was paid for by the council. But despite the lawyer, she didn't get much of a merciful sentence. She was given 18 years to life and was taken to Bedford Hills Correctional Facility in upstate New York. Her reputation preceded her. The inmates there had heard that she was a badass, the hit woman. But she didn't feel like a badass. For the second time in her life, she stopped talking entirely. Blanche Wright went to prison feeling extremely guilty about these murders, even though her role in them was so minimal and forced. And she would think a lot about, she would imagine the families of these people who had died, not knowing anything about them, really. She would come to learn that some of them might have had children, or she came to hear that. She came to fear it. And to this day, she worries about saying something that some distant offspring of one of these murdered drug dealers from 40 years ago is going to read and come after her for. She's not paranoid about it, and it doesn't keep her awake at night, but it's a constant thought, just a part of her life in a way that you and I wouldn't understand. It's just a part of her thinking. At Bedford, she gave birth. She was shackled to her bed, just in case she got the idea to try and plot an escape in the middle of active labor. She had her baby, a boy. He was taken out of the hospital room and out of her life. And she was returned to her cell. And then Blanche's story, which had been so full of twists and turns, got another plot twist. But this one was finally good. The twist was this. Blanche thrived in prison. It was the first place since the group home where she started feeling like a person again, a valuable person. 
She was surrounded by women there, and many of them were just like her, women who'd been abused and manipulated and led to crime by men who said they were in love with them. For the first time, Blanche realized that she wasn't alone. She started going to group therapy, even though she hated thinking about herself. She found that she liked thinking about other people's problems more. She liked thinking about how to solve them. Here was one problem, the pre-approved clothing list. If Blanche or her fellow inmates wanted their relatives to send them a piece of clothing, the relatives had to buy the clothing off a pre-approved list, and the pre-approved list was designed for men. So nothing fit. It was a list of things like men's pants and men's shoes, all baggy and uncomfortable and weird. There were even things on the list like pipes and jock straps. So one day, Blanche whispered her idea to a fellow inmate. She said, hey, they should all request jock straps and pipes from their families. Blanche didn't say that this was her idea. She didn't want credit for it. She didn't want the attention. She made it seem like the idea had come from someone else and she was just passing it along. And so the plan spread anonymously through the prison until the big day came and all the jock straps arrived. And the women took them out and put them on their heads like they were wearing bandanas. And Blanche at one point turns around in some line and there's a line behind her and every woman in line, like 40 or 50 women are wearing a jockstrap on their head with a pipe smoking or nearby. And it didn't take long for the corrections officers to look around and say, uh, okay, what's going on? Okay, you have our attention. What are you doing? This would lead to, you know, women's pants in women's sizes becoming available, women's shoe sizes. So it worked. And I love it. It's like a this kind of Norma Ray moment. It's funny. It's a funny thing. And she tells it with great pride and like, you know, the smile on her face. It was just a classic sort of a caper. Blanche got more and more involved in prison life. She sold makeup and put the profits towards recreation programs for inmates. She trained guide dogs for blind people, and she worked with domestic violence programs. She worked with a nun to launch a program called Our Journey, which was a monthly retreat for women who'd been incarcerated. In fact, Blanche's relationship with this nun was very meaningful to her, because one of the things that this nun believed was that incarcerated mothers should get a chance to be with their children to play with their children, to touch their children, not just to talk to them behind glass. Because of this, Blanche was able to play with one of her sons on the weekends. It made all the difference in my life, she said. He just turned 40, and I don't think we'd have a true relationship now without those visits. Blanche didn't talk much to Michael about her sons. She didn't want them affected by the article. As the years stretched on, Blanche was denied parole again and again. This never surprised her. She barely even tried to get herself parole, frankly. She didn't think she deserved it. She saw herself as a monster. But then she met another woman who helped her. This woman was an advocate for victims of domestic violence named Charlotte Watson, Charlotte wrote letters to person after person, asking them to write letters to the parole board in defense of Blanche. The letters poured in, from a former superintendent of the prison, a retired lieutenant at the prison, 
even a prosecutor. And it worked. Blanche was finally given parole in 2009. When she walked free, her fellow inmates were clapping, screaming out of the windows, overjoyed for the girl who'd come to prison silent, but who had found her voice there. Today, Blanche lives a quiet life just outside of New York City. She keeps plants on her windowsill. About once a month, she takes the train into the city to work at a halfway house where female inmates are finishing their sentences. The house is full of young women who are just like she was when she was young. She tells them all the things she wishes someone had told her. Like, you have worth. Towards the end of our four days together, she said, I'm not sleeping well, just reliving all this with you. I didn't sleep well last night and my neck is sore. I'm just feeling really stressed out about this. So uh, let's keep going so that we can be done. Really uh, generous, actually, in its way. Blanche's life changed very little because of the article, as far as I can tell. We've stayed in touch over the last two years. And the article came out on Sunday and she went to work on Monday. She was working at Rikers Island at the time, dealing with talking to inmates who are just arriving and inmates who are about to be shipped out. And that led to another job, which led to a different job. And this was her focus, this work. When you look back at Blanche Wright's life, you see horror and abuse. But you also see these bright spots, the women in her life who really saw her as a person who actually helped her, guiding lights, strong women. And now here's Blanche on the other side of all that horror. She might not want to admit it since she always downplays her own importance, but she's one of those guiding lights now, one of those strong women. That's all, folks. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Michael for coming on the podcast. If you'd like to read more of his journalism or follow him on Twitter or whatever, I'm going to put his info in the show notes. He recently wrote a crazy story about um, basically a detective who befriended a serial killer who was already incarcerated to get him to admit to more murders. And uh, you'll have to read the story to see what happens. But that'll all be in the show notes. Um, thank you so much to today's patron, Bjarni I.S., for your support. If anyone else wants to become a patron, patreon.com slash criminalbroads. That's always in the show notes. And as always, if you haven't left a review for the podcast, but you've been listening for a while, maybe you like it. Maybe you just can't stop listening. Maybe you're thinking, in what way can I bless Tori today? <laughs> Go to the app on your phone, especially if it's the Apple app, whatever it's called, podcasts, apples, whatever, and leave a rating 
or and or a written review. That would be very helpful to me. All right, everyone. I hope you're having a lovely July and I will meet you here next week. Meet you back here next week. Same time, same place. Don't ask me what the story is because I'm not entirely sure, but you'll hear all about it a week from now. Love you all. Bye. Maybe I'm right, maybe I'm wrong, loving you dear like I do. If it's a crime, then I'm guilty, guilty of loving you. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.